Welcome to this Ubula Audio presentation of The King in Yellow by Robert W. Chambers. Volume 10 The Street of Our Lady of the Fields Quote, And all days spent in sorrow we count as happy days. Unquote. Chapter 1 The street is not fashionable, neither is it shabby. It is a pariah among streets, a street without a quarter. It is generally understood to lie outside the pale of the aristocratic Avenue de la Observatoire. The students of Montparnasse Quarter consider it swell and will have none of it. The Latin Quarter from the Luxembourg, its northern frontier, sneers at its respectability and regards with disfavor the correctly costumed students who haunt it. Few strangers go into it. At times, however, the Latin Quarter students use it as a thoroughfare between the Rue de Rennes and the Boulier. But except for that and the weekly afternoon visits of parents and guardians to the convent near the Rue Favine, the street of Our Lady of the Fields is as quiet as a passé boulevard. Perhaps the most respectable portion lies between the Rue de la Grande Chaumière and the Rue Vavine. At least this was the conclusion arrived at by Reverend Joel Byram, as he rambled through it with Hastings in charge. To Hastings, the street looked pleasant in the bright June weather, and he had begun to hope for its selection when the Reverend Byram shied violently at the cross on the convent opposite. Jesuits! he muttered. Well, said Hastings wearily, I imagine we won't find anything better. You say yourself that vice is triumphant in Paris, and it seems to me that in every street we find Jesuits or something worse. After a moment he repeated, Or something worse, which of course I would not notice, except for your kindness in warning me. Dr. Byram sucked in his lips and looked about him. He was impressed by the evident respectability of the surroundings. Then, frowning at the convent, he took Hastings' arm and shuffled across the street to an iron gateway, which bore the number... 201 bis, painted in white on a blue ground. Below this was a notice printed in English. 1. For porter, please oppress once. 2. For servant, please oppress twice. 3. For parlor, please oppress thrice. Hastings touched the electric button three times, and they were ushered through the garden and into the parlor by a trim maid. The dining-room door just beyond was open, and from the table in plain view, a stout woman hastily arose and came toward them. Hastings caught a glimpse of a young man with a big head and several snuffy old gentlemen at breakfast, before the door closed and the stout woman waddled into the room, bringing with her an aroma of coffee and a black poodle. "'It is a pleasure to receive you,' she cried. "'Monsieur is Anglais?' No, American, of course. My pension, it is for Americans throughout. Here, all speak English. They deal the personnel. The servants do speak, plus, ou moi, a little, I'm happy to have you come pensioners. Madam, began Dr. Byram, but was cut short again. Ah, yes, I know. Ah, mon Dieu, you do not speak French, but... You have come to learn. My husband does speak French. 
with the pensioners. We have at the moment uh, a family American who learned of my husband, Franch. Here the poodle growled at Dr. Byram and was promptly cuffed by his mistress. We are two, she cried, a slap. We are two. Oh, le villon, oh, le villon. Me, madame, said Hastings, smiling. Il n'a pas l'air très feroce. The poodle fled and his mistress cried. Oh, the accent charming. He does speak French already, like a Parisian young gentleman. Then Dr. Byram managed to get in a word or two and gathered more or less information with regard to prices. It is a pension, Sarah. My clientele is of the best. Indeed, a pension de famille, where one is at home. Then they went upstairs to examine Hastings' future quarters, test the bed springs, and arrange for the weekly towel allowance. Dr. Byram appeared satisfied. Madame Marot accompanied them to the door and rang for the maid, but as Hastings stepped out into the gravel walk, his guide and mentor paused a moment and fixed Madame with his watery eyes. You understand that he is a youth of most careful upbringing, and his character and morals are without a stain. He is young and has never been abroad, never even seen a large city, and his parents have requested me as an old family friend living in Paris, to see he's placed under good influences. He's to study art, but on no account would his parents wish him to live in the Latin Quarter if they knew of the immorality which is rife there. A sound like the click of a latch interrupted him, and he raised his eyes, but not in time to see the maid slap the big-headed young man behind the parlor door. Madame coughed, cast a deadly glance behind her, and then beamed on Dr. Byram. It is well that he come here. The pension, more serious. Ilian exists pas. It is not any, she announced with conviction. So as there was nothing more to add, Dr. Byram joined Hastings at the gate. I trust, he said I in the convent, that you'll make no acquaintances with Jesuits. Hastings looked at the convent until a pretty girl passed before the gray facade, and then he looked at her. A young fellow with a paint box and canvas came swinging along, stopping before the pretty girl, said something during a brief but vigorous handshake at which they both laughed, and he went his way, calling back, Altamon, Valentine! As in the same breath she cried, Altamon! Valentine, thought Hastings. What a quaint name. And he started to follow the Reverend Joel Byram, who was shuffling toward the nearest tramway station. Chapter 2 And you are pleased with Paris, Monsieur Anstang? demanded Madame Marotte the next morning, as Hastings came into the breakfast room of the pension, rosy from his plunge in the limited bath above. I'm sure I'll like it he replied, wondering at his own depression of spirits. The maid brought him coffee and rolls. He returned the vacant glance of the big-headed young man and acknowledged diffidently the salutes of the snuffy old gentleman. He did not try to finish his coffee and sat crumbling a roll unconscious of the sympathetic glances of Madame Marotte, who had tact enough not to bother him. 
Presently, a maid entered with a tray on which were balanced two bowls of chocolate, and the snuffy old gentleman leered at her ankles. The maid deposited the chocolate at the table near the window and smiled at Hastings. Then a thin young lady, followed by her counterpart in all except years, marched into the room and took the table near the window. They were evidently Americans, but Hastings, if he expected any sign of recognition, was disappointed. To be ignored by fellow English speakers intensified his depression. He fumbled with his knife and looked at his plate. The thin young lady was talkative enough. She was quite aware of Hastings' presence, ready to be flattered if he looked at her. But on the other hand, she felt her superiority, for she had been three weeks in Paris, and he, it was easy to see, had not yet even unpacked his steamer trunk. Her conversation was complacent. She argued with her mother upon the relative merits of the Louvre and the Bon Marche, but her mother's part of the discussion was mostly confined to the observation, Why, Susie! The snuffy old gentleman had left the room in a body, outwardly polite and inwardly raging. They could not endure those Americans who filled the room with their chatter. The big-headed young man looked after them with a knowing cough, murmuring, Gay old birds! They look like bad old men, Mr. Bladen, said the girl. To this, Mr. Bladen smiled and said, They've had their day, in a tone which implied that he was now having his. And that's why they all have baggy eyes, cried the girl. I think it's a shame for young gentlemen to... Why, Susie, said the mother, and the conversation lagged. After a while, Mr. Bladen threw down the petit journal, which he studied daily at the expense of the house, and turning to Hastings, started to make himself agreeable. He began by saying, I see you're an American. To this brilliant and original opening, Hastings, deadly homesick, replied gratefully, and the conversation was judiciously nourished by observations from Miss Susie Bing, distinctly addressed to Mr. Bladen. In the course of events, Miss Susie, forgetting to address herself exclusively to Mr. Bladen, and Hastings, replying to her general question, the Entente Cordiale, was established, and Susie and her mother extended a protectorate over what was clearly neutral territory. Mr. Hastings, you must not desert the pension every evening as Mr. Bladen does. Paris is an awful place for young gentlemen, and Mr. Bladen is a horrid cynic. Mr. Bladen looked gratified. Hastings answered, Well, I shall be at the studio all day, and I imagine I shall be glad enough to come back at night. Mr. Bladen, who was at a salary of $15 a week, acted as an agent for the Puley Manufacturing Company of Troy, New York. He smiled a skeptical smile and withdrew to keep an appointment with a customer on the Boulevard Magenta. Hastings walked into the garden with Mrs. Bing and Susie, and at their invitation sat down in the shade before the iron gate. The chestnut trees still bore their fragrant spikes of pink and white, and the bees hummed among the roses, trellised on the white-walled house. A faint freshness was in the air. The watering carts moved up and down the street, and a clear stream bubbled over the spotless gutters of the Rue de la Grande Chaumière. The sparrows were merry along the curbstones, taking bath after bath in the water, and ruffling their feathers with delight. In a walled garden across the street, a pair of blackbirds whistled among the almond trees. Hastings swallowed the lump in his throat, for the song of the birds and the ripple of the water in the Paris gutter brought him back to the 
sunny meadows of Millbrook. That's a blackbird, observed Miss Bing. See him there on the bush with pink blossoms? He's all black except his bill, and that looks as if he's been dipped in an omelet, as some Frenchmen say. Why, Susie, said Mrs. Bing. That garden belongs to a studio inhabited by two Englishmen, continued the girl serenely. And I often see them pass. They seem to have need of a great many models, mostly young and feminine. Why, Susie! Perhaps they prefer painting that kind, but I don't see why they should invite five with three more young gentlemen and all get into two cabs and drive away singing. This street, she continued, is dull. There's nothing to see except the garden and a glimpse of the Boulevard Montparnasse through the Rue de la Grande Chaumière. No one ever passes except a policeman. And there's a convent on the corner. I thought it was a Jesuit college began Hastings, but at once was overwhelmed with a Baedeker description of the place, ending with, On one side stands the palatial hotels of Jean-Paul Lorenz and Guillaume Bourgeau, and opposite in the little passage Stanislas, Caroline Durand paints the masterpieces that charm the world. The blackbird burst into a ripple of golden throaty notes, and from some distant green spot in the city an unknown wild bird answered, with a frenzy of liquid trills, until the sparrows paused in their ablutions to look up with restless chirps. Then a butterfly came and sat on a cluster of heliotrope and waved his crimson-banded wings in the hot sunshine. Hastings knew him for a friend, and before his eyes there came a vision of tall moulins and scented milkweed alive with painted wings, a vision of a white house and woodbine-covered piazza a glimpse of a man reading and a woman leaning over the pansy bed, and his heart was full. He was startled a moment later by Miss Bing. I do believe you are homesick. Hastings blushed. Miss Bing looked at him with a sympathetic sigh and continued. Whenever I felt homesick at first, I used to go with Mama and walk in the Luxembourg Gardens. I don't know why it is, but those old-fashioned gardens seem to bring me nearer home than anything in this artificial city. But they are full of marble statues, said Mrs. Bing mildly. I don't see the resemblance myself. Where is the Luxembourg? inquired Hastings after a silence. Come with me to the gate, said Miss Bing. He rose and followed her, and she pointed out the Rue Vavine at the foot of the street. You pass by the convent to the right, she smiled, and Hastings went. Chapter 3 The Luxembourg was a blaze of flowers. He walked slowly through the long avenues of trees, past mossy marbles and old-time columns, and threading the grove by the bronze lion, came upon the tree-crowned terrace above the fountain. Below lay the basin shining in the sunlight. Flowering almonds encircled the terrace, and in a greater spiral, groves of chestnuts wound in and out down among the moist thickets by the western palace wing. At one end of the avenue of trees, the observatory rose, its white domes piled like an eastern mosque. At the other end stood the heavy palace, with every window pane ablaze in the fierce sun of June. Around the fountain, children and white-capped nurses 
armed with bamboo poles, were pushing toy boats whose sails hung limp in the sunshine. A dark policeman wearing red opalettes and a dress sword watched them for a while and then went away to remonstrate with a young man who had unchained his dog. The dog was pleasantly occupied in rubbing grass and dirt into his back while his legs waved into the air. The policeman pointed at the dog. He was speechless with indignation. "'Well, Captain,' smiled the young fellow. "'Well, Monsieur Student,' growled the policeman. "'What do you come and complain to me for?' "'If you don't chain him, I will take him,' shouted the policeman. "'What's that to me, mon capitaine?' "'What? Isn't that English bulldog yours?' "'If it was, don't you suppose I'd chain him?' The officer glared for a moment in silence, then deciding that, as he was a student he was wicked, grabbed at the dog, who promptly dodged. Around and around the flower beds they raced, and when the officer came too near for comfort, the bulldog cut across a flower bed, which perhaps was not fair play. The young man was amused, and the dog also seemed to enjoy the exercise. The policeman noticed this and decided to strike at the fountainhead of the evil. He stormed up to the student and said, As the owner of this public nuisance, I arrest you. But, objected the other, I disclaim the dog. That was a poser. It was useless to attempt to catch the dog until three gardeners lent a hand, but then the dog simply ran away and disappeared in the Rue de Medici. The policeman shambled off to find consolation among the white-capped nurses, and the student, looking at his watch, stood up yawning. Then he caught sight of Hastings. He smiled and bowed. Hastings walked over to the marble, laughing. "'Why, Clifford, I didn't recognize you,' he said. "'It's my mustache,' sighed the other. "'I sacrificed it to humor a whim of, well, of a friend. "'What do you think of my dog?' "'Oh, then he was yours,' cried Hastings. "'Of course, it's a pleasant change for him, this playing tag with policemen. "'But he is known now, and I'll have to stop it. "'He's gone home. He always does when the gardeners take a hand. "'It's a pity.' He's fond of rolling on the lawns. Then they chatted for a moment of Hastings' prospects, and Clifford then politely offered to stand his sponsor at the studio. You see, old Tabby, well, I mean, Dr. Byram, told me about you before I met you, explained Clifford, and Elliot and I will be glad to do anything we can. Then, looking at his watch again, he muttered, I have just ten minutes to catch the Versailles train. Au revoir. And he started to go but catching sight of a girl advancing by the fountain, took off his hat with a confused smile. "'Why are you not at Versailles?' she said with an almost imperceptible acknowledgment of Hastings' presence. I'm, "'I'm going,' murmured Clifford. For a moment they faced each other, and then Clifford, very red, stammered, "'With your permission, I have the honor of presenting to you my friend, Mr. Hastings.' Hastings bowed low. She smiled very sweetly, but there was something of malice in the quiet inclination of her small Parisian head. I could have wished that Monsieur Clifford might spare me more time when he brings with him so charming an American. Must I go, Valentine? began Clifford. Certainly, she replied. Clifford took his leave with very bad grace, wincing when she added, And give my dearest love to Cecile. As he disappeared in the Rue d'Assas, the girl turned as if to go, but then, suddenly remembering Hastings, 
looked at him and shook her head. Monsieur Clifford is so perfectly harebrained, she smiled. It is embarrassing sometimes. You have heard, of course, all about his success at the salon? He looked puzzled and she noticed it. You have been to the salon, of course. Well, no, he answered. I only arrived in Paris three days ago. She seemed to pay little heed to his explanation, but continued. No one imagined he had the energy to do anything good, but on vanishing day the salon was astonished by the entrance of Monsieur Clifford, who strolled about as bland as you please with an orchid in his buttonhole and a beautiful picture on the line. She smiled to herself at the reminiscence and looked at the fountain. Monsieur Bougoreau told me that Monsieur Julian was so astonished he only shook hands with Monsieur Clifford in a dazed manner and actually forgot to pat him on the back. Fancy that! She continued with much merriment. Fancy Papa Julian forgetting to pat one on the back! Hastings, wondering at her acquaintance with the great Bougereau, looked at her with respect. May I ask, he said diffidently, whether you are a pupil of Bougereau? I, she said in some surprise. Then she looked at him curiously. Was he permitting himself the liberty of joking on such short acquaintance? His pleasant, serious face questioned hers. Tiens, she thought. What a droll man. You're surely studying art, he asked. She leaned back on the crooked stick of her parasol and looked at him. Why do you think so? Because you speak as if you did. You're making fun of me, and it's not good taste. She stopped, confused, as he colored to the roots of his hair. How long have you been in Paris? She said at length. Three days, he replied gravely. But, but surely you are not nouveau. You speak Francais too well. Then after a pause. Really, are you a nouveau? I am, he said. She sat down on the marble bench lately occupied by Clifford, and tilting her parasol over her small head looked at him. I do not believe this. He felt the compliment and for a moment hesitated to declare himself one of the despised. Then, mustering up his courage, he told her how new and green he was, and with all the frankness which made her blue eyes open very wide and her lips part in the sweetest of smiles. You have never seen a studio? Uh, no, never. Nor a model? No. How funny, she said solemnly. Then they both laughed. And you, he said, have seen studios? Hundreds. And models? Millions. And you know Bougereau? Yes, and Henner, and Constant, and Laurence, and Pouvy de Chavant, and Dagnon, and Courtois, and, well, all the rest of them. But you say you're not an artist. Pardon? She said gravely. Did I say I was not? Won't you just tell me? He hesitated. At first she looked at him, shaking her head and smiling. Then, of a sudden, her eyes fell, and she began tracing figures with her parasol on the gravel at her feet. Hastings had taken a place on the seat, and now with his elbows on his knees, sat watching the spray drifting above the fountain jet. A small boy, dressed as a sailor, stood, poking at his yacht and crying, I won't go home! I won't go home! 
His nurse raised her hands to the heavens. Just like a little American boy, thought Hastings, and a pang of homesickness shot through him. Presently, the nurse captured the boat, and the small boy stood at bay. Monsieur René, when you decide to come here, you may have your boat. The boy backed away, scowling. Give me my boat, and don't call me René. My name's Randall, and you know it. Hello, said Hastings. Randall, that's English. I'm an American, announced the boy in perfectly good English, turning to look at Hastings. And she is a fool when she calls me René. My mama calls me Ranny. Here he dodged the exasperated nurse and took up his station behind Hastings, who laughed and, catching him around the waist, lifted him into his lap. One of my countrymen, he said to the girl beside him. He smiled while he spoke, but there was a queer feeling in his throat. Don't you see the stars and stripes on my yacht? demanded Randall. Sure enough, the American colors hung limply under the nurse's arm. Oh, cried the girl. He is charming and impulsively stooped to kiss him. But the infant Randall wriggled out of Hastings' arms, and his nurse pounced upon him with an angry glance at the girl. She reddened and then bit her lips as the nurse, with eyes still fixed on her, dragged the child away and ostentatiously wiped his lips with her handkerchief. Then she stole a look at Hastings and bit her lip again. "'What an ill-tempered woman,' he said. In America, most nurses are flattered when people kiss their children. For an instant, she tipped the parasol to hide her face, then closed it with a snap and looked at him defiantly. Do you think it's strange, she objected. Why not, he said in surprise. Again, she looked at him with quick, searching eyes. His eyes were clear and bright, and he smiled back and repeated, Why not? You adroit, she murmured, bending her head. Why? But she made no answer and sat silent, tracing curves and circles in the dust with her parasol. After a while, he said, I'm glad to see that young people have so much liberty here. I understood that the French were not at all like us. You know, in America, well, or at least where I live in Millbrook, girls have every liberty. They go out alone and receive friends alone. I, I was afraid I would miss that here, but I see how it is now. I'm glad I was mistaken. She raised her eyes to his and kept them there. He continued pleasantly. Since I have sat here, I have seen a lot of pretty girls walking alone on the terrace there. And then you're alone, too. Tell me, for I don't know French customs. Do you have the liberty of going to the theater without a chaperone? For a long time, she studied his face. And then, with a trembling smile, said, Why do you ask me? Because you must know, of course he said gaily. Yes, I know, she replied indifferently. He waited for an answer, but getting none, decided that perhaps she'd misunderstood him. I hope you don't think I mean to presume on our short acquaintance, he began. In fact, it's very odd, but I don't know your name. When Mr. Clifford presented me, he only mentioned mine. Is that the custom in France? It is the custom in the Latin Quarter, she said with a queer light in her eyes. Then suddenly she began talking almost feverishly. You must know, Monsieur Hastings, that we are all un pur saint Jean here in the Latin Quarter. We are very bohemian, and etiquette and ceremony are out of place. It was for that Monsieur Clifford presented you to me with small ceremony and left us together with less, 
only, only for that. And I am his friend, and I have many friends in the Latin Quarter, and we all know each other very well. And I am not stepping out, but, but, but what? He said, bewildered. I shall not tell you. It is a secret," she said with an uncertain smile. On both cheeks, a pink spot was burning, and her eyes were very bright. Then, in a moment, her face fell. "Do you know Monsieur Clifford very intimately?" "Not very." After a while, she turned to him, grave and a little pale. "My name is Valentine, Valentine Tizot. Might, might I ask a service of you on such a very short acquaintance?" "'Oh, yes, I'd be honored. he cried. "'It is only this,' she said gently. "'It is not much. "'Promise me not to speak to Monsieur Clifford about me. "'Promise me that you will speak to no one about me.' "'Okay, I promise,' he said, greatly puzzled. "'She laughed nervously. "'I wish to remain a mystery. "'It is a caprice.' "'But... I had wished, I had hoped, that you might give Monsieur Clifford permission to bring me, to present me at your, your house. My, my house? She repeated. I, I mean where you live, with your family. To present me to your family. The change in the girl's face shocked him. I, I beg your pardon. I've hurt you, he cried. And as quick as a flash, she understood him because she was a woman. M my parents are dead, she said. Presently he began again, very gently. Would it displease you if I beg you to receive me? It is the custom. I cannot, she answered, then glancing up at him. I am quite sorry. I should like to, but believe me, I cannot. He bowed seriously and looked vaguely uneasy. It isn't because I don't wish to. I, I like you. You are very kind to me. Kind? He cried, surprised and puzzled. I like you she said slowly, and we will see each other sometimes, if you will. At friends' houses? No, not at friends' houses. Where? Here, she said with defiant eyes. Why, in Paris you are so much more liberal in your views than we are. She looked at him curiously. Yes, we are very bohemian. Well, I think it's charming, he declared. You see, we shall be in the best of society, she ventured timidly with a pretty gesture toward the statues of the dead queens ranged in stately ranks above the terrace. He looked at her, delighted, and she brightened at the success of her innocent little pleasantry. Indeed, she smiled. I shall be well chaperoned because, you see, we are under the protection of the gods themselves. Look, there, Apollo, Juno, Venus on their pedestals. Counting them on her small gloved fingers, she continued, And Ceres, Hercules, and... But I can't make out... Hastings turned to look up at the winged god under whose shadow they were seated. Um, I think it's love, he said. Chapter 4 There is a nouveau here, drawled Lafatte leaning around his easel and addressing his friend Bowles. There is a nouveau here who is so tender and green and appetizing that heaven help him if he should fall into a salad bowl. Hey, Seed, 
inquired Bowles, plastering in a background with a broken palette knife and squinting at the effect with approval. Oui, oui, squidunk, ashkash, something like that, and how he ever grew up among the daisies and escaped the cows, heaven only knows. Bowles rubbed his thumb across the outlines of his study to throw in a little atmosphere, and glared at the model, and pulled at his pipe, and finding it struck a match on his neighbor's back to relight it. His name, continued Lafatte, hurling a bit of bread at the hat rack, his name is Hastings. He is a berry. He knows no more about the world. And here Mr. Lafatte's face spoke volumes for his own knowledge of that planet. Then a maiden cat on its first moonlight stroll. Bowles, now having succeeded in lighting his pipe, repeated the thumb touch on the other edge of the study and said, Ah, yes, continued his friend. And would you imagine it? He seems to think everything here goes on as it did in his dead little backwoods ranch at home. He talks about the pretty girls who walk alone in the streets, says how sensible it is, and how French parents are misrepresented in America, says that for his part he finds French girls, and he confessed to knowing only one, as jolly as American girls. I tried to set him right, tried to give him a pointer as to what sort of ladies walk about alone or with students and he was either too stupid or too innocent to catch on. Then I gave it to him straight, and he said I was a vile-minded fool and marched off. Did you assist him with your shoe? inquired Bowles, languidly interested. Well, no. He called you a vile-minded fool? He was correct, said Clifford from his easel in front. What, what do you mean? demanded Lafatte, turning red. That, replied Clifford. "'Who spoke to you? Is this your business?' sneered Bowles, but nearly lost his balance as Clifford swung about and eyed him. "'Yes,' he said slowly. "'It is my business.' No one spoke for a long time. Then Clifford sang out, "'I say, Hastings!' And when Hastings left his easel and came around, he nodded toward the astonished Lafatte. This man has been disagreeable to you, and I want to tell you that any time you feel inclined to kick him, why, well, I'll hold the other creature. Hastings and Barris said, No, 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 I don't agree with his ideas. Nothing more. Clifford said, Naturally, and slipping his arm through Hastings, strolled about with him and introduced him to several of his own friends, at which all the Nouveau opened their eyes with envy, and the studio were given to understand that Hastings, although prepared to do menial work as the latest nouveau, was already within the charmed circle of the old, respected, and feared, the truly great. The rest finished. The model resumed his place, and work went on in a chorus of songs and yells, and every ear-splitting noise which the art student utters when studying the beautiful. Five o'clock struck. The model yawned, stretched, and climbed into his trousers, and the noisy contents of six studios crowded through the hall and down into the street. Ten minutes later, Hastings found himself on top of a Montrage tram, and shortly afterwards was joined by Clifford. They climbed down at the Rue Gay-Lussac. I always stop here, observed Clifford. I like to walk through the Luxembourg. By the way, said Hastings, how can I call on you when I don't know where you live? Why, I live opposite you. Wait, 
The studio in the garden where the almond trees are and the blackbirds? Exactly. I'm with my friend Elliot, said Clifford. Hastings thought of the description of the two artists, which he had heard from Miss Susie Bing, and looked blank. Clifford continued, Perhaps you'd better let me know when you think of coming, so, so that I'll be sure to, to be there, he ended rather lamely. I shouldn't care to meet any of your model friends there, said Hastings, smiling. You know, my ideas are rather straight-laced. I, I suppose you could say puritanical. I shouldn't enjoy it and wouldn't know how to behave. Oh, I quite understand, said Clifford, but added with great cordiality. I'm sure we'll be friends, although you may not approve of me and my set, but you will like Savan and Selby because, well, because they are like yourself, old chap. After a moment he continued, There is something I want to speak about. You see, when I introduced you last week, in the Luxembourg, to Valentine, No, no, not a word, cried Hastings, smiling. You must not tell me a word of her. But, no, no, not a word, he said gaily. I insist. Promise me upon your honor you'll not speak of her until I give you permission. Now promise. I, I promise, said Clifford, amazed. She is a charming girl. We had such a delightful chat after you left, and I thank you for presenting me, but not another word about her until I give you permission. Yes, right, murmured Clifford. Remember your promise, he smiled, as he turned into his gateway. Clifford strolled across the street, and traversing the ivy-covered alley, entered his garden. He felt for his studio key, muttering, I wonder. Oh, Lord, I don't think he's figured it out, has he? He entered the hallway, and fitting the key into the door, stood staring at the two cards tacked over the panels. Foxhall Clifford, Richard Osborne Elliot. Why the devil doesn't he want me to speak of her? He opened the door, discouraging the caresses of two brindle bulldogs, sank down on the sofa. Elliot sat smoking and sketching with a piece of charcoal by the window. Hello, he said without looking around. Clifford gazed absently at the back of his head, murmuring, I'm afraid that man is too innocent. I say, Elliot, he said at last. Hastings, you know, the chap that old Tabby Byram came around here to tell us about? The day you had to hide Colette in the armoire? Yes, what's up? Oh, nothing. He's a brick. Yes, said Elliot without enthusiasm. Don't you think so? demanded Clifford. Why, yes, but he is going to have a tough time when some of his illusions are dispelled. More shame to those who dispel them. Yes, wait until he comes to pay his call on us, unexpectedly, of course. Clifford looked virtuous and lit a cigar. I was going to say that I have asked him not to come without letting us know, so I can postpone any orgy you might have intended. Oh, cried Elliot indignantly. I suppose you put it to him in that way. Not exactly, grinned Clifford, then more seriously. I don't want anything to occur here to bother him. He's a brick, and it's a pity we can't be more like him. I am, observed Elliot complacently. Only living with you. Listen, cried the other. I have managed to put my foot in it in great style. Do you know what I've done? Well, the first time I met him in the street, or rather it was in the Luxembourg, I introduced him to Valentine. Did he object? 
Believe me, this rustic Hastings has no more idea that Valentine is, well, is in fact Valentine, than he has that he himself is a beautiful example of moral decency in a quarter where morals are as rare as elephants. I heard enough in a conversation between that blackguard, Lofot, and the little immoral eruption bowls to open my eyes. I tell you, Hastings is a trump. He's a healthy, clean-minded young fellow, bred in a small country village, brought up with the idea that saloons are way stations to hell, and as for women... Eh? demanded Elliot. Well, said Clifford, his idea of the dangerous woman is probably a painted Jezebel. Probably, replied the other. He's a trump, said Clifford, and if he swears the world is as good and pure as his own heart, I'll swear he's right. Elliot rubbed his charcoal on his file to get a point, and turned to his sketch, saying, He will never hear any pessimism from Richard Osborne E. He's a lesson to me, said Clifford. Then he unfolded a small, perfumed note written on rose-colored paper, which had been lying on the table before him. He read it, smiled, whistled a bar or two from Miss Haylett, and sat down to answer it on his best cream-laid notepaper. When it was written and sealed, he picked up his stick and marched up and down the studio two or three times, whistling. "'Going out?' inquired the other without turning. "'Yes,' he said, but lingered a moment over Elliot's shoulder, watching him pick out the lights in his sketch with a bit of bread. "'Tomorrow's Sunday,' he observed after a moment's silence. "'Well?' inquired Elliot. "'Have you seen Colette?' "'No, I will tonight.' She and Rowden and Jacqueline are coming to Balance. I suppose you and Cecile will be there. Well, no, replied Clifford. Cecile dines at home tonight, and I... I had an idea of going to Mignon's. Elliot looked at him with disapproval. You can make all the arrangements for La Roche without me, he continued, avoiding Elliot's eyes. What are you up to now? Oh, nothing, protested Clifford. Don't tell me replied his chum with scorn. Fellows don't rush off to Mignon's when they're set to dine at Boulant's. Is it now? But no, I won't ask. What's the use? Then he lifted up his voice in complaint and beat upon the table with his pipe. What's the use ever trying to keep track of you? What will Cecile say? Oh yeah, what will she say? It's a pity you can't be constant two months. My God, and the quarter is indulgent, but she abuse its good nature and mine too. Presently he arose, and jamming his hat on his head, marched to the door. Heaven knows why anyone puts up with your antics, but they all do, and so do I. If I was Cecile, or any of the other pretty fools around here after whom you've toddled and will, in all human probabilities, continue to toddle, I'll say, if I was Cecile, I'd just spank you. Now I'm going to Boulance, and as usual I shall make excuses for you and arrange the affair. I don't care a continental where you are going, but by the skull of the studio skeleton, if you don't turn up tomorrow with your sketching kit under one arm and Cecile under the other, if you don't turn up in good shape, I'm done with you, and the rest can think what they please. Good night. Clifford said good night with as pleasant a smile as he could muster, and then sat down with his eye on the door. He took out his watch and gave Elliot ten minutes to vanish then rang the concierge's call, murmuring, Oh dear, oh dear, why the devil do I do it? 
Alfred, he said as the gimlet-eyed person answered the call, make yourself clean and proper, Alfred, and replace your sabots with a pair of shoes. Then put on your best hat and take this letter to the big white house and the Rue de Dragon. I do not expect an answer, mon petit Alfred. The concierge departed with a snort in which unwillingness for the errand and affection for Monsieur Clifford were blended. Then, with great care, the young fellow arrayed himself in all the beauties of his and Elliot's wardrobe. He took his time about it and occasionally interrupted his toilette to play his banjo or make pleasing diversion for the bulldogs by gambling about on all fours. I've got two hours before me, he thought, and borrowed a pair of Elliot's silken footgear with which he and the dogs played ball until he decided to put them on. Then he lit a cigarette and inspected his dress coat. When he'd emptied it of four handkerchiefs, a fan, and a pair of crumpled gloves as long as his arm, he decided it was not suited to add style to his charms and cast about in his mind for a substitute. Elliot was too thin, and anyway, his coats were now under lock and key. Rowden was probably as badly off as himself. However, Hastings, Hastings was the man, but when he threw on a smoking jacket and sauntered over to Hastings' house, he was informed he had been gone over an hour. Now where in the name of all this reasonable could he have gone? muttered Clifford, looking down the street. The maid didn't know, so he bestowed upon her a fascinating smile and lounged back to the studio. Hastings, however, was not far away. The Luxembourg is within five minutes' walk of the Rue Notre-Dame-des-Champs, and there he sat for an hour, poking holes in the dust and watching the steps which lead from the northern terrace to the fountain. The sun hung, a purple globe above the misty hills of Medon. Long streams of clouds touched with rose swept low on the western sky, and the dome of the distant Invalides burned like an opal through the haze. Behind the palace, the smoke from a high chimney mounted straight into the air, purple until it crossed the sun, where it changed it to a bar of smoldering fire. High above the darkening foliage of the chestnuts, the twin towers of Sansulpice rose, an ever-deepening silhouette. A sleepy blackbird was caroling in some near thicket, and pigeons passed and repassed with the whisper of soft winds in their wings. The light on the palace windows had died away, and the dome of the Pantheon swam aglow above the northern terrace, a fiery Valhalla in the sky, while below in grim array, along the terrace, ranged the marble ranks of queens looking out into the west. From the end of the long walk by the northern façade of the palace came the noise of the omnibuses and cries of the street. Hastings looked at the palace clock. Six. And as his own watch agreed with it, he fell to poking holes in the gravel again. A constant stream of people passed between the Odeon and the fountain. Priests in black with silver buckled shoes, line soldiers, slouchy and rakish, neat girls without hats bearing milliner's boxes, students with black portfolios and high hats, students with berets and big canes, nervous, quick-stepping officers, symphonies in turquoise and silver, ponderous, jangling cavalrymen all over dusted, Pastry cook's boys skipping along with utter disregard for the safety of the basket balanced on the impish head. And then the lean outcast, the shambling Parisian tramp, 
slouching with shoulders bent and little eye furtively scanning the ground for smoker's refuse. All these moved in a steady stream across the fountain circle and out into the city by the Odeon, whose long arcades were now beginning to flicker with gas jets. The melancholy bells of Saint-Sulpice struck the hour, and the clock tower of the palace lit up. Then hurried steps sounded across the gravel, and Hastings raised his head. "'How late you are!' he said. But his voice was hoarse, and only his flushed face told how long had seemed the waiting. She said, "'I was kept. Indeed, I was so much annoyed, and, and I may only stay a moment.' She sat down beside him, casting a furtive glance over her shoulder at the god upon his pedestal. What a nuisance! Cupid? Wings and arrows, too, said Hastings, unheeding her motion to be seated. Wings, she murmured. Oh, yes, to fly away with when he's tired of his play. Of course, it was a man who conceived of the idea of wings. Otherwise, Cupid would have been unsupportable. Do you think so? Ma foi! It's what men think. And women? Oh, she said with a toss of her small head. I really forget what we were speaking of. We were speaking of love, said Hastings. I was not, said the girl. Then she looked back up at the marble god. I don't care for this one at all. I don't believe he knows how to shoot his arrows. No, indeed. He is a coward. He creeps up like an assassin in the twilight. I don't approve of his cowardice. She announced this and turned her back on the statue. I think, said Hastings quietly, that he does shoot fairly. Yes, and he even gives one warning. Is this your experience, Monsieur Hastings? He looked straight into her eyes and said, He's warning me. Heed the warning, then, she cried with a nervous laugh. As she spoke, she stripped off her gloves and then carefully proceeded to draw them back on again. When this was accomplished, she glanced at the palace clock, saying, Oh dear, how late it is! She furled her umbrella, then unfurled it, and finally looked at him. No, he said, I shall not heed his warning. Oh dear, still talking about that tiresome statue. Then stealing a glance at his face. I suppose you are in love. I don't know. I suppose I am he muttered. She raised her head with a quick gesture. You seem delighted at the idea, she said, but bit her lip and trembled as his eyes met hers. Then sudden fear came over her and she sprang up, staring into the gathering shadows. Are you cold? he said. But she only answered, Oh dear, oh dear, it is late, so late. I must go. Good night. She gave him her gloved hand a moment and then withdrew it with a start. What is it? he insisted. Are you frightened? She looked at him strangely. No, no, not frightened. You are very good to me. Good gosh, he burst out. What do you mean by saying I'm good to you? That's at least the third time, and I don't understand it. The sound of a drum from the guardhouse of the palace cut him short. Listen, they are going to close, she whispered. It's late, oh, so late. The rolling of the drum came nearer and nearer, and then the silhouette of the drummer cut the sky above the eastern horizon. The fading light lingered a moment on his belt and bayonet, then he passed into the shadows, drumming the echoes awake. 
The roll became fainter along the eastern terrace, then grew and grew and rattled with increasing sharpness when he passed the avenue by the bronze lion and turned down the western terrace walk. Louder and louder the drum sounded, and the echoes struck back the notes from the gray palace wall. And now the drummer loomed up before them, his red trousers a dull spot in the gathering gloom. The brass of his drum and bayonet touched with a pale spark, his opalettes tossing on his shoulders. He passed, leaving the crash of the drum in their ears, and far into the alley of trees they saw his little tin cup shining on his haversack. Then the sentinels began the monotonous cry, On ferme! On ferme! And the bugle blew from the barracks and the rue de Tournon. On ferme! On ferme! Good night, she whispered. I must return alone tonight. He watched her until she reached the northern terrace, then sat down on the marble seat until a hand on his shoulder and a glimmer of bayonets warned him away. She passed on through the grove and, turning into the Rue de Medici, traversed it to the boulevard. At the corner, she bought a bunch of violets and walked on along the boulevard to the Rue de École. A cab was drawn up before Boulant's, and a pretty girl, aided by Elliot, jumped out. Valentine! cried the girl. Come with us! I cannot, she said, stopping a moment. I have a rendezvous at Mignon's. Not Victor! cried the girl, laughing. But she passed with a little shiver, nodding good night. Then turning into the boulevard Saint-Germain, she walked a little faster to escape a gay party sitting before the Café Cluny, who called to her to join them. At the door of Restaurant Mignon stood a coal-black negro in buttons. He took off his peaked cap as she mounted the carpeted steps. "'Send Eugene to me,' she said at the office, and passing through the hallway to the right of the dining room, stopped before a row of paneled doors. A waiter passed, and she repeated her demand for Eugene." who presently appeared noiselessly, skipping, and bowed, murmuring, Madame, who is here? No one in the cabinets, Madame. In the half, Madame Maudelaine and Monsieur Gay, Monsieur de Clermont, Monsieur Clisson, Madame Marie, and their set. Then he looked around and, bowing again, murmured, Monsieur awaits Madame since half an hour. And he knocked at one of the paneled doors bearing the number six. Clifford opened the door and the girl entered. The garçon bowed her in and whispered, Will monsieur have the goodness to ring? And vanished. He helped her off with her jacket and took her hat and umbrella. When she was seated at the little table with Clifford opposite, she smiled and leaned forward on both elbows, looking him in the face. What are you doing here? she demanded. Waiting, he replied in accents of adoration. For an instant she turned and examined herself in the glass. The wide blue eyes, the curling hair, the straight nose and short curled lip flashed in the mirror an instant only, and then its depths reflected her pretty neck and back. Thus do I turn my back on vanity, she said, and leaning forward again, what are you doing here? Waiting for you, repeated Clifford, slightly troubled. Aunt Cecile? Now don't, Valentine. 
Do you know I dislike your conduct? She said calmly. He was a little disconcerted and rang for Eugene to cover his confusion. The soup was bisque, the wine pommery, and the courses followed each other with the usual regularity until Eugene brought coffee and there was nothing left on the table but a small silver lamp. Valentine, said Clifford after having obtained permission to smoke, is it the vaudeville or the El Dorado or both or the Nouveau Cirque or... It is here, said Valentine. Well, he said greatly flattered, I'm afraid I couldn't amuse you. Oh, yes, you are funnier than the Eldorado. Now see here, don't guy me, Valentine. You always do, and, and you know what they say. A good laugh kills. What? Well, love and all that. She laughed until her eyes were moist with tears. Tears, she cried. He is dead, then. Clifford eyed her with growing alarm. Do you know why I came? She said. No, he replied uneasily. I don't. How long have you made love to me? Well, he admitted somewhat startled, I should say for about a year. It is a year, I think. Are you not tired? He did not answer. Don't you know that I like you too well to ever fall in love with you? Don't you know we are two good comrades, two old friends for that? And were we not? Do you think I do not know your history, Monsieur Clifford? Don't be sarcastic, he urged. Don't be unkind, Valentine. I'm not. I am kind. I'm very kind to you and to Cecile. Cecile is tired of me. I hope she is, for she deserves a better fate. Tiens, do you know your reputation in the quarter? You are known to be... Inconstant, the most inconstant, utterly incorrigible, and no more serious than a gnat on a summer night. Poor Cecile. Clifford looked so uncomfortable that she spoke more kindly. I like you. You know that. Everyone does. You are a spoiled child here. Everyone has permitted you, and everyone makes allowances. But everyone cannot be a victim to caprice. Caprice? he cried. Good God, if the girls of the Latin Quarter are not capricious, then... Never mind, never mind about that. You must not sit in judgment, you of all men. Why are you here tonight? Oh, mon Dieu! I will tell you why. Monsieur receives a little note. He sends a little answer. He dresses in his conquering raiment. I do not, said Clifford, very red now. You do, and it becomes you. She retorted with a faint smile, then again very quietly. I am in your power, but I know I am in the power of a friend. I have come to acknowledge it to you here, and it is because of that I am here to beg of you a, a favor. Clifford opened his eyes but said nothing. I am in great distress of mind. It is Monsieur Hastings. Really? said Clifford in some astonishment. I want to ask you, I, I want to ask you to, to, in case you should speak of me before him, do not say, do not say, I shall not speak of you to him at all, he said quietly. Can, can you prevent others? 
I might if I was present. May I ask why? No, that is not fair, she murmured. You know how... You know how he considers me, as he considers every woman. You know how different he is from you and the rest. I have never seen such a man. Such a man as Monsieur Hastings. He let his cigarette go out unnoticed. I am almost afraid of him, afraid he should know what we all are in the quarter. Oh, I do not wish him to know. I do not wish him to to turn from me, to cease speaking to me as he does. You and the rest cannot know what it has been to me. I could not believe him. I could not believe he was so good and, and noble. I do not wish him to know so soon. He will find out sooner or later. He will find out for himself. And then he will turn from me. Why? She cried passionately. Why should he turn from me and not from you? Clifford, much embarrassed, eyed his cigarette. The girl rose very white. He is your friend. You have a right to warn him. He is my friend, he said at length. They looked at each other in silence. Then she cried. By all that I hold to me most sacred, you need not warn him. I shall trust your word, he said pleasantly.